HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're getting semantic to understand the deeper meaning behind some of the foods we love. First, we'll look at the big debate happening around the word milk. Who the hell are you to tell me what is the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy it? <laughs> it's our entire life. Then we get the lowdown on the language of cider. So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth. And finally, we get our fill of tiki talk. You don't walk into a tiki bar and be like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like, it's, it's supposed to be like fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad, and that's where it gets a bad name. Tune into this week's episode of Meat and 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. My guest today is Mohamed Moderes. He's a current 2019 TED resident and the founder of Abe's Meats, He's an, which is an award-winning social impact organization that has produced the first-ever interfaith meat products that are both halal and kosher. The product has premiered at Shabbat Salam interfaith dinners around the country from San Francisco to New York's Times Square. Welcome to the show, Mohammed. Thanks for having me, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you have so many amazing different things that you are working on that I know are all connected, um, and I hope we can touch on most of them today. But why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about like where you're from and what your upbringing was like, because I know part of your story has very much sort of informed your business. Sure, absolutely. I uh, I grew up not too far away in a place called Paramus, New Jersey, just the suburbs of, of New York. Um, famous and for Ikea. Famous for Ikea. <laughs> and, 
yeah, just many other malls. It's it's actually the mecca of shopping. A lot of New Yorkers go to Paramus to, to go to Garden State Plaza and, and Paramus Park. And all the Paramus residents at one point or another have folded shirts at Banana Republic. <laughs> like that's just... <laughs> Did you? That's how we all bond. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I was in I was in Room 1, the, the, the intro where, you know, you'd, you'd greet and you know, you'd make sure that they, they would follow through to Room 2 and Room 3. And, and if, uh, you know, if they're big spenders, hopefully they get a suit and everybody's <laughs> all happy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, spent some time in Prams, New Jersey before I went on to study public health at Hopkins. Um, and I got my first taste of doing some public health work abroad in Southern and Eastern Africa, um, where I was introduced to different aspects of, of public health, mostly in environmental science, uh, before I got a phone call to come to California, uh, which was always the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. I always thought... Um, I would end, end up in California, um, so I was really excited to go there and to work under a uh, renewable energy company, and, uh, and then go into biotechnology before the 2016 uh, elections happened. And uh, the rhetoric, the, the atmosphere um, really changed, and it really reminded me of actually what my my family and a lot of uh, different minority groups fell after 2001, after September 11th. And where's your family from? Uh, we're Iranian uh, background, um, Muslim Americans, and uh, I, you know, I never thought that I would then transition f- to food, not at all. I mean, <laughs> if you were to ask my, my parents, um, but after uh, after the the 2016 elections. Um, and seeing, witnessing the rise in anti-Semitism, the rise in anti-Muslim bigotry, I wanted to just bring my Muslim and Jewish friends together and over, over dinner, talk about how we could combat this rise in hate. And um, sure enough, we couldn't necessarily agree on, on the food. <laughs> we needed to have, of course, uh, kosher food, um, a halal food. I wanted to respect, as the host, I wanted to respect everyone's religious dietary laws and make sure that uh, I would be as inclusive as possible. And sure enough, I thought, well, this is, you know, this is odd. I, I, I grew up eating halal food. My, my parents continue to be, uh, uh, consume halal food only in the household. And uh, I never really thought about the difference between halal and kosher. And so sure enough, I decided to just jump into my van. Um, living in California, I was very stereotypical. I had a 1979 VW bus, um, one of those surfer buses. And uh, I started just going up and down the coast and asking people, uh, you know, religious leaders, food experts, if I could combine uh, this, uh, this process, this whole long kosher process. And, and the hardest part of it is in meat. Um, especially if you're talking about glut kosher, which is a more orthodox form of kosher, sabiyah halal, which is a more conservative form of halal. Uh, and sure enough, I found people who, who just were really into the idea as, as much as I was, as, as excited as I was. And I mean, I became really obsessed with it after uh, a couple of months of just you know running around and uh, getting deeper and deeper into the supply chain of just meat production, but just general food production as well. Um, I'd like to think that if you have this, I feel like, common trait with other people who study public health, we just 
are constantly digging deeper and deeper into um, how things are made. And uh, with food, I mean, it is just endless, uh, especially in meat production. There's just so many uh, different stories and different ways of, of production. Uh, some, as we know, that are extremely bad for the environment and other ways that, are, that, that can be very good for the environment. Um, before we get too deep into that, uh, which is yeah. such an interesting part of component of your business model, I'm just curious, like how, because you didn't work in food at all, like how it even <laughs> yeah. occurred to you that like food was this way in, you know, sure. like what even inspired you to start bringing your friends together, like through food? How did that become like an access point for you? Absolutely. So before then, a uh, little side note, I should say, I was, my dissertation actually in public health was about using uh, uh, sports as a tool to educate youth uh, around different um, health issues. And so I had already, based on sports and prior to that, based on art, I was a political cartoonist. Uh, How you, you look yeah. very young to me. You like, <laughs> lived nine lives and had 37 um, careers. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, it's, he, it's almost like in... Uh, in the autobiography of Malcolm X, you know, there's a, there's a there's a part in the book, and of course a part in, in the movie, um, where Malcolm X is given two glasses of water, and one is a clear glass of water, and the other is uh, droplets of, of ink, and the person speaking to him says, "Look, you could tell someone that that water is dirty, or you could let them see for themselves, and you could let them explore," and a lot of times when I see different forms of management and leadership, there are a lot of people who will point at something and say, that's bad and that's good. And it doesn't allow people to take ownership of that experience. While as if you, if you use a tool to take people through that experience and then allow them to, to, to take ownership of it by themselves, they have a much more uh, transformative uh, uh, approach to it all. And so whether that's food, whether that's uh, sports, whether that's the arts, um, and mind you, with the arts, a lot of my illustrations, a lot of my artwork was, was against war. You know, I was doing a lot of illustrations at the time of the, the Iraq war. Um, the Abu Ghraib prison scandal was a piece that I did it was, that was kind of controversial, but um, it allowed me to, to speak to an audience without saying much. Um, sports, for example, uh, I was working with uh, FIFA's Football for Hope program. Uh, this was for the 2010 uh, FIFA World Cup in South Africa. And instead of telling kids, you know, seven, eight, you know, 10, 15 years old who have had parents who, uh, who lost parents because of HIV AIDS, you know, this is what HIV is, this is what AIDS is, rather we take the game of football and we teach it to them in a very different way. We, you know, the, the, the goalie is the condom. The soccer ball is the virus. And it allows them to then be able to um, narrate their own process and begin to learn about something that they otherwise would see as so distant to them. And so in the case of food, what ends up being so beautiful is that when you can tell people that, hey, we've, we've combined the whole long kosher process uh, in meat specifically because that's the hardest. Um, our attendees, in this case, at the Shabbat Salam events are enamored by the fact that, wait, if we can bring this together 
What else can we merge? And it ends up not really being about the meat, but rather as a tool to talk about how we can collaborate in different ways and make sure that we're working together to tackle this rise in hate. Now, for, for the Jewish person, of course, they've been dealt with anti-Semitism. For the Muslim, that's anti-Muslim bigotry. But for the most part, it's very much the same thing. And that is when people are, are unfortunately put in a situation to believe in the other the other hurting them, the other taking away their job, the other, you know, what have you, it's just a form of dehumanizing someone. And in our situation, we've realized that when, when the Muslim and with, with their Jewish equivalent coming together, not only for producing the meat, but coming together to build an agenda to tackle this, they also create a much stronger movement. Um, and that's, that's now unfolded so much beyond Abe's meats. I mean, for us, that's, that was, it first started off as just, let's host these Shabbat Salam dinners. Let's see what happens. Then after we had about a thousand people come to these dinners, these attendees came up to us and were just like, hey, can we buy the meat? You know, we want to share it in our communities. And that's when Abe's Meats was formed. I mean, I, I generally didn't think I would, excuse me, be, be uh, you know, establishing a, a food company by any means. Um, it's, it's <laughs> to my parents. Uh, you know, dismay of, uh, they're, they're still waiting for me to get a real job, right? <laughs> so, um, but that said, it's, it's really taken a, a world of its own and we just have incredible support and incredible family of not just religious leaders, but food experts who, uh, want to showcase it and be part of making sure that, uh, you know, we have this conversation of, uh, representation representation or movie screens representation or in our, in our political leaders but now it's about also having representation in the simplest things and that even means the the dinner table making sure that our guests our neighbors when they come over we are as inclusive as possible and for the longest time that actually meant for for muslims and jews that's the dilemma of kosher and halal for others that may be gluten-free yeah. <laughs> and uh, other dietary restrictions i don't think um that Muslims and Jews have a lot of opportunities to sit down together for dinner, um, unless there's like uh, something is cultivated for mm -hmm. that to happen. But it seems like from where your perspective, like you had, like you're Muslim and you also had a lot of Jewish friends, like you were sort of uniquely positioned to think about like this really cohesive future opportunity, mm -hmm. um, where like that could happen more frequently and, you know, in different settings. Um, and I think, you know, things have been created like since Trump's election where there's people thinking about how to get people sitting together at a table and break down some of these barriers. And like food is certainly a great way to create a context for that. How, how were you able to see that? I mean, how were you sort of like what was your launching off point where you were like, what's happened with this election is affecting me and my community and like my family. But it's also affecting other people because I don't think people step outside themselves very often to think about like the larger picture, if that mm. makes sense. Sure, sure. I mean, I'm not going to give Trump too much credit here. <laughs> no, it's, no, no, it's certainly. Been, <laughs> it's been, uh, I'll say this, being being Iranian-American, um, having lived in Iran, um, nuance was, was always part of just our, our household. You know, we would, um, 
not necessarily agree with, but we would very much respect uh, opinions of, of another person. And we would have, I mean, I grew up watching 60 Minutes and, and <laughs> you know, Intelligence Squared uh, with my parents. And uh, living in Iran was also a, an incredible opportunity to just learn, specifically in Iran, Esfahan, a town that uh, has a very large Jewish population, Muslim par- uh, population, Armenian Christian population. There's a beautiful Armenian Christian church we would pass through every uh, every week as we would go to the park. Um, and the it was actually until I came to, to the United States where, where I realized that, oh, okay, people seem to separate themselves because of their faith. That was just right. fascinating to me. Um, and uh but i mean that said i think we are going in a a lot of people say we're going in a dark direction and 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 this and that and of course you have instances that can can make us believe that right a a synagogue gets damaged uh um uh, you know the the shooting in, in 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 pittsburgh what happened in new zealand recently but between those points i will say that there are communities that have been working for together for hundreds of years um, that, you know, the, the conversation of being a Muslim in America is not even a generation or two generations old. I mean, Thomas Jefferson and, and his, his Quran is that's as old as, as this country's history. Um, I think it's a matter more of narrative and how we do storytelling. And the bigger question for me is always, you know, the, the t- TED conference is going on this this week, and um, Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, uh, w- had a conversation with with Chris Anderson, uh, who's the the CEO of, of TED, and there was a lot about how do we now control or not control this narrative, but allow people to have freedom of speech, but at the same time be able to do fact checking and be able to 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 not see things as so black and white. And I think for for us, uh, those of us who, you know, are lucky enough uh, to to have the motivation and to have the drive and to to kind of push ourselves through this, you know, uh, as Elon Musk calls the eating glass moment, <laughs> this painful process of whether that's entrepreneurship or activism or or whatever that that drives you, it's about making sure that we set out first and foremost creating a society that that's built on truth and you know we we value kindness and we value integrity and we value in many cases we value money and we, you know we value capitalism and we uh, uh value materialism and we've put aside truth for a little while because we have built an industry that you know a lot of people even say well bleeds reads and um it breaks my heart when, when of course, when any time we have a situation uh, uh, such as Pittsburgh, such as New Zealand, but I also want people to know that there are countless of communities that are working together, um, that are are building and rebuilding uh, their communities to be stronger, uh, to be inclusive, and inclusive across uh, every aspect, right? race and religion and what have you. I mean, just the other day, unfortunately, we had a a place of of worship. Um, You know, the spire 
burn through and uh, in, in, in Paris. Um, and few know that actually there was a, a fire, not of such great magnitude, but a fire that happened in Jerusalem um, at a mosque that is very important to Muslims. And that, that narrative, uh, and it happened actually, oddly enough, within 24 hours of each other. And so a lot of Muslims were talking about that, and a lot of you know, Christians were talking about it. And he, you know, here's that, that moment, and I, and I wish the, the, I don't want to say media, I don't want to just generalize it to one group, but we need to have a conversation of, of making sure that our storytelling and, and this, even within that storytelling, that the truth of all this is constantly corrected and, com- and comes out. Um, and I, I think about that a lot, and I still haven't, you know, it's a big problem, and, and there needs to be a big solution. And that solution, of course, involves technology. That solution will involve, uh, need, need to involve some form of regulation. I don't know. It's beyond my world right now. Um, maybe I'll have the luxury of hopping into that that world uh, soon. I don't know, but um, you know, it's it's something that that bothers me because there's just so much good work being done by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. We're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lilypool Terrace. Executive chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Diane Stemple. And I'm Elena Santigade, and we're the hosts of Cutting the Curd here on Heritage Radio Network. Featuring interviews with makers and mongers and everybody in between, this show is a downright funky look at the world of artisan cheese. You can find Cutting the Curd wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I have been chatting with Mohammed Medeiros. He's the founder of Abe's Meat, which is uh, the first interfaith meat on the market. It's both um, halal and glatt kosher, which, um, from my understanding, is probably logistically very complicated and incredibly expensive to produce. <laughs> and, and yet you you do it. <laughs> it's um, expensive, that's for sure. <laughs> so do you want to just talk a little bit about um, like the logistics, like the, the behind the scenes sure. work to, to, to figure this all out and coordinate sure. it? <laughs> yeah, you're going you're gonna to learn a lot 
Bahal on kosher right now. <laughs> Good. Yes. Let's go. Uh, so, first of all, halal means permissible. Now, permissible can mean a lot of different things. Um, in the halal world, that means something that is not haram or not permissible, which is not you know not alcohol, uh, not swine or pork, uh, you know, n- not cooking with with vanilla extract because that has a, a lo- level of you know haram things in there. Um, and so when people think about halal, it's actually like, yeah, you could go down the street, go to your you know local fried chicken joint, and that's actually halal because that's that's chicken. You can eat it. But what we say is zabia halal. And zabia halal, uh, zabia itself is the Arabic word for slaughter. And that is a relatively new concept by, you know, the, the, the culturally built to uh, help people uh, produce meat the right way. So for Muslims, that means, you know, uh, offering a prayer because at the end of the day, you're sacrificing another living sentient being uh, to nourish yourself. Uh, that, uh, and now, many of the steps, some in the Middle East will disagree with some people in Malaysia or Singapore, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's still a little uh, um, controversial, if you will. Not, I, I shouldn't say controversial, but people go back and forth on different things. Um, but for us... We have tried to take every single step into consideration and put it into our process. And so that means when we say we're Zabiya Halal, that means our sourcing is from livestock that are 100% grass-fed. Uh, that comes as, as local, as, uh, from local ranchers. Um, so New Jersey, Pennsylvania, et cetera. If we're, you know, uh, as an East Coast company, that's, we, we source as local as possible. Um, and then we also follow other types of uh, dietary laws uh, from different denominations uh, of Islam. From the kosher standpoint, kosher means pure. And similar to halal, kosher itself is a little bit more uh, broad, while as glut kosher is a little bit more specific. It's a uh, interpretation by a more orthodox form of Judaism. And similar to halal, the general concepts of halal and kosher can be found in uh, religious texts, um, whether oral or written. Uh, while as the more specific glut kosher and zabia halal are fairly new, and so glut, the term glut itself, uh, is referring to uh, smooth, the smoothness of the lungs. So after a what's called a Jewish shochet. The, the person who oversees the glut kosher process, when they're sacrificing the animal, after that animal is then produced into meat, they check over the, the, the uh, meat products themselves to see that, it's, that the animal was a healthy animal. And so alongside the USDA official, because we work in a USDA facility, a shochet comes and says that, all right, you know, this, this animal is obviously grass-fed, grass finished you know we see that within its stomach what does grass finished mean so so in the world of food and coming from biotech i found this so fascinating because i always thought that in healthcare we 
a lot a lot of of healthcare is just so much jargon and it's it's so cloudy for the end patient to really understand what they're getting especially the cost of our healthcare that's that's a whole different story <laughs> whole different podcast yeah. <laughs> but um luckily but, not mine <laughs> but in food what i found so so fascinating was that you could as a consumer want something get go and purchase that something, but not actually get what you're thinking of. And grass-fed is one of those terms, similar to free-range and pasture-raised and, uh, gosh, uh, natural and organic and all these terms, they have no actual, uh, um, you know, uh, you uh, in the United States, no legal framework around it. There's no specific guidelines. Yeah, I mean, you can you can technically say, hey, this is um, this is this is uh, organic, uh, referring to so many products that that for the end consumer they may be thinking something completely else. But you realizing that, hey, yeah, it's organic because well, it you know it has carbon in it, and uh, you know it's <laughs> it's food, um, and with grass fed. There's a massive difference between, hey, this is grass-fed versus this is grass-fed, grass-finished, or another term for it, which makes it even more confusing, 100% grass-fed. So grass-fed literally means that an animal has had grass at some point. So, you know, uh, spoiler alert, every animal has had grass <laughs> at some point because they start off on grass. They start off on pasture. So you can have that same factory-farmed, grain-fed animal be labeled as grass-fed. That's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking to so many consumers who are who are paying. They're you know just choosing. They're voting with their dollar to say I want to I want to buy something that's healthier. And so they go and look, and there it is. There's a label that says grass fed, and they think they're getting something better. Meanwhile, it could be very much the same thing. Oh, so it's like grass start to finish. Yeah, and in this case, when we say grass fed, grass finish, that means from start to finish, the animal has lived on pasture and has, uh, you know, had a better life. It's, it's a more ethical, more humane process. And one of the things that frustrated me the most about not just food production, but then going into religious dietary law is that, hey, you know, if you're going to call yourself kosher, if you're going to call yourself halal, if you're going to, you know, uh, uh, attach yourself to any other faith-based law, that you are then making yourself not accountable to necessarily a government, but accountable to God. <laughs> and therefore, there's a certain level of responsibility that you're saying you're putting on yourself uh, and therefore your, your customers as trusting uh, uh, for you to have. And so when I see different companies that, that say they're following a certain dietary law and they're, following f they're, they're producing factory farmed meat, that breaks my heart, you know, and a lot of times that's the same type of marketing as a company that says they're, uh, they're organic or they're 100% natural or what have you when they're not. So this is the type of, you know, in addition to being halal, in addition to being kosher, which those have their own expenses, it's about how do we produce a product that is of the highest quality. And for us, I was telling um, last time I was here was uh, with uh, Ethan, 
um, on Y food. Uh, on Y foods. Yeah. yeah, great guy. And and we were chatting about how I'm a I'm a meat company now. I run a meat company, but I'm a meat company that doesn't necessarily want to be a meat company. <laughs> I'm a meat company that wants you to eat less meat. I want you to eat less better meat. If you spend 20 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, I don't know, 200 bucks a month on meat products right now, well, take that same amount that you spend and make sure that you're getting it from a local source that does 100% grass fed. And just by doing that, just taking your purchasing power and going local and going higher quality means you're going to eat less meat, which is better for the environment. And because of the fact that it's you know, 100% grass fed, it's all, it's, it's even, you know, now you're even taking a, a further step into being more uh, ecologically friendly because if it's done the right way, if you're consuming livestock that have been on pasture, that have, that have, you know, grazed and poked and pooped on, on pasture, those animals are actually helping us build what's called carbon soil. So when manure is spread across pasture, that manure is actually extremely valuable. On, on pasture, what happens is this manure helps build a stronger soil. And that soil very much creates a stronger pasture that sequesters carbon. So we always think about trees as trees taking our CO, CO2 in, trees being in the lungs of, of the earth. And that's 100% true. But all the pastures across America, you know, in many ways, right? God bless my. You have so much pastures, <laughs> so much pasture, and it could benefit so much in the in the fight against climate change because these 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 uh, uh, in a sense grass can be straws that suck out carbon from the sky and put it back into our soil, and we have more carbon under our feet than all the plants and our atmosphere combined. It's actually it's it. it I mean, this is, there's a volcano underneath us. And we have to be very careful with how we take care of our grass and our soil and everything that is beneath us. And if we disrupt it, if we till and we factory farm, we are going to literally let this volcano erupt and cause us much more damage in, in our fight against climate change. So many people say, you know, eating meat is bad for the environment. And that is 100% true if it's factory farmed. Right. And unfortunately, 99% of the industry is factory farmed. But you have 1% of ranchers, 1% of farmers who are doing really good work in looking at regenerative agriculture. And so when you go out and you're thinking about buying your meat, chances are you, you have a lot of choices for factory farmed, which means you have to be very careful as a, as a buyer, as a voter in this system. You are voting with your dollar to choose, you know, not only what tastes better, I, I, at least I'm biased to that, but what will add value to our, to our farmer, to our economy, um, and to our environment. Um, on that note, and I know you have to wrap up, um, tell us then how we can find you how yeah. we can i mean we didn't really get to talk too much about your shabbat salam dinners which is like yeah, the yeah. best phrase i've ever heard <laughs> so brilliant um so if you can quickly kind of like give us the rundown of how to keep up with the dinners that you're sure. doing and i know that your meat is just available for purchase um let us know about tell us about those things yeah sure so we have shabbat salam dinners uh we've had it around the country for over a year now and it's been great we've we've 
sold out every time. Thank you so much to, to everybody who shows up. And to all the uh, always last minute coming. Yeah. <laughs> and to all the, uh, yeah. yeah, the new people uh, that are going to start coming. But, um, but now we actually, we actually just closed up our shop online, our e-commerce shop, because we're getting ready for a Kickstarter. Um, and we just filmed our Kickstarter commercial. I don't want to give too much away, but on Sunday we, uh, we filmed it and, uh, over the next week we're, we're doing some post-production. I'm, I'm super excited. Cause it was like the first time I'm behind the camera and I'm, <laughs> you know, uh, trying to trying to you know act like a like a director or something <laughs> um and then and my dad ended up coming from my parents live in portland now um and so my dad being here at the same time kind of seeing all that type of stuff seeing things unfold because my parents are always wondering what's going on right <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> um so it's been nice but uh hopefully when the kickstarter campaign comes out of course i would love uh love for everyone to check it out to share it um to support us we have uh, just like in everything, we have a, uh, uh, a wonderful, wonderful community. But then, of course, we always every so often have someone who, you know, doesn't like what we do. And uh, and we always want to make sure that um, even the person who doesn't and this goes back to our the conversation before commercial break is it's it's embracing that nuance and I learned this actually when I was in California. I lived in California for just a couple of years, but I ended up uh, <laughs> being in the same house as someone who I was 25, 26 at the time. And she was, she was about 72, 73 at the time. And um, for the elections, you know, was, I'm, I'm, I'm a big uh, Bernie Sanders supporter. I will still continue to, for this elections, uh, uh, support him. Um, and uh, she was a, a Trump supporter. And every, every night we would have these, these wonderful conversations. And uh, every night we would always make sure we ended it respectfully and understand the, per the perspective that, that each of us is coming with. And so, you know, as I kind of unfold this initiative and bring Abe's Meats into the world, I still, you know, every so often deal with someone who says because of, you know, whatever reason um, that we, I don't know, we don't produce good meat or we're religiously, you know, this, this doesn't make sense Two these two fates can come together, et cetera, et cetera. And um, my, 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 my only ask actually is, is of people is that if you meet someone who has this perspective, if you ever forward our stuff to them, if our Kickstarter is doing well, but there's a friend who, who uh, otherwise um, is, uh, is showing a little bit of hesitation for whatever reason, invite them to our Shabbat Salah. Because what we want is people of vastly different views sitting across from each other. And this is the this is the reason why I'm, I'm kind of still stuck in food. I thought, all right, you know, we'll do a couple of Shabbat salams here and there, you know, see how it goes. Maybe we can uh, get some people in different cities to host their own every so often. And, and I'll go and go back into public health because it's, it's just I love public health. <laughs> and uh, but sure enough, we're still around. And it's, you know, it, it comes down to the beauty of what the dinner table does. I mean, when you're sitting across from someone and the screens are, you know, put aside, you, you have the opportunity to really, truly understand someone because it's, 
it's they're right there they're in front of you it's the information is is as humanized as possible right it's not just a number anymore it's not just an incident that you heard in the news it you get to see that person with all their emotion with all their rawness and um so whenever you know we have someone who is different in the sense of a just a different viewpoint we want to make sure that they're there so they see what our community is is so you know uh, uh, supportive of and what our community who is so supportive understands and recognizes and respects the the other viewpoints that are brought up and to just give you an example one of the issues that i would keep going back and forth with our uh, my my housemate at the time she was saying uh that you know nothing is free and it was in it was in response to bernie sanders's thoughts about at the time making uh certain uh colleges or, or university level uh affordable and making it free um considering what were dealt with with student loans and what have you and uh her response was hey you know nothing's free your generation is going to pay x much tax and all this you know you're going to before you can blink your eyes you're going to be paying 70 80 tax and um you know, I've lived in Europe for a while, and I've I've paid my fair share <laughs> high taxes, um, and we went into a conversation of well, what happens if we have a more educated society? Let's say people get their college degrees, more people can now afford it, so now more people are getting college degrees. Now that dilutes a little bit what the college degree may mean, but you have people who are let's say more critical thinkers, and now there's more people voting, so now we have a stronger democracy. So now we have people who are uh, working more and they're productive members of society. And depending on the community that you're working with, your home value can go up. And suddenly that seemed to trigger an interesting conversation for her because she was just like, oh, well, if my home price goes up, then what does that mean for my community? Because I want more parks and this and that. And um, it ended up being a very interesting learning lesson for myself and for her Realizing that the common ground is really about listening to just what the person wants within the community that they see as facing some type of challenge. And I think when we begin to have that conversations at, their, at our dinner tables and we give that moment, we allow people to be heard and we allow them to have more minds thinking together of solutions that can help our our communities and, and hopefully our country and you know, and hopefully that could that could that could go beyond borders. <laughs> so, I try I try to go one eight with the name. <laughs> we came full circle. I like it. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate being oh, on. Thank you so much for being here. Episode. And um, is abesmeets dot com the yeah. best place to find go you? Go on abesmeets.com, Sign up for. Are you on? For, are you on Twitter? Are you on Instagram? Yeah, no, I I appreciate. It. I already had just today's a couple. Uh, couple uh, instagram followers i'd like to think we're doing pretty good on instagram content we won't push it too hard but you know every time we'll post something i think you'll like it so thank Keep you going so much with it. thanks thank mohammed and everyone out there um make sure to to check out his dinners and eat his meat i think you'll like it um and best of luck with your kickstarter make sure to kick in for that too thanks everyone for listening to food without borders this was the end of season five so thank you all for um keeping up with us and following us on itunes and stitcher and spotify in heritageradionetwork.org
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.